This is an ABC podcast. So the concept of the Great Resignation is simply that now that we all work from home, now that we all have uh, the option to jump jobs simply because there are so many job openings and so few workers available that people quit their current job and they take pretty much the same job at a new organization at a higher rate. That's the, the logic that stems out of the US where the data actually points a bit to that happening where we have the highest number of job changes recorded in the data. The intellectual argument holds true in Australia as well. It makes sense to say, yes, Australia also has a very low unemployment rate. There's a skills shortage. That seems to be evident, but there is not any data that bases the argument in, in fact that we say workers are changing jobs at scale. And tell us about the COVID baby boom. Is there any evidence that that's happening in Australia? <laughs> yeah, so the COVID baby boom was essentially just an intellectual argument that was put forward at the start of the pandemic in March, April last year, where people said, sure enough, if we go into lockdown now, nine months later, there will surely be a baby boom as if the only thing we uh, could possibly think of when we're locked down is to procreate. That, of course, was not the case. Quite the opposite was the case. We saw the birth rate in Australia drop to record lows. And that's demographer Simon Kirstenmacher. Today, we're looking at research data analysis. Just how reliable is it? Can it be misread? And what are the dangers of extrapolation? Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. You're listening to This Working Life. Simon, does data lie? Well, data can lie if you want it to. And data can be misread, misinterpreted. And maybe the whole idea of misinterpreting data is at fault anyways. Because while the data is whatever it is, we as human researchers, as human data commentators, we put our own spin on it. Uh, you know, it doesn't need to be a lie. It can just be our own glasses uh, that essentially skew the view of the world. And so in the examples that we were talking about, tell us how was the data skewed in terms of the interpretation I think what usually comes is that people have a narrative in mind, that the intellectual argument uh, sounds very tempting to say, you know, we are all locked down. So surely, you know, if people are together for so long, <laughs> it's a cute story to say that there will be a baby boom. And I think in this particular instance, this comes from what is sadly just an urban myth uh, from the US where they said in New York, there was this big power outage in the 70s, uh, I think for two or three days. And then 10 months afterwards, there was this big baby boom happening. And that's not true. There is no, there is no fact in this, but it's an excellent story because you link a beautiful fun narrative to a real event. So what's at play here, Simon? It sounds a bit like confirmation bias. Oh, very, very much so. And we are, of course, falling in love with the stories that we <laughs> tell ourselves because we're drawn to narratives. This is how we make sense of the world. It's perfectly fine. But to then constantly remind yourself to step back, to look at the data 
independently and say, is this actually happening? And what would a great resignation look like in a data set? It's not that easy, actually, when you think about it. You need to find a data set that goes back historically and that shows the sheer number of job changes. So once we have this historic data set, we then have a benchmark. We know this is what we kind of expect, uh, this level of job changes. And then we'd say, well, if we saw an uplift of maybe 10%, maybe 15%, then we can talk about the great resignation. But if there is even only a tiny uptick in a data set, we then sometimes really focus too much on forcing a narrative onto a little blip in the data. So for this example of the great resignation, you're saying too early to call? I would say definitely it's impossible to call at the moment in Australia because we don't have a data set uh, that we can actually point to. And uh, so far, we then looked at data that came out of surveys uh, on LinkedIn, which, well, you'd say it's, it's fair enough. We can use this data to, to a certain degree, but it's only data that looks at uh, the here and now. So we don't have a benchmark from the past where we could actually uh, make a decent comparison against. And that's what we'd always want to do. We want to compare the status quo with the past and then look at uh, changes. And then, of course, on top of this, we then add our narrative. And it's tempting to uh, just force our narrative onto whatever data set we see. You mentioned social media surveys. So we're often seeing the citation of survey results on our social feeds. How do we know which ones to believe, Simon? Well, my favorite data is the big picture data that comes out of the ABS, where we are looking at present day and past data, because this is factual stuff that actually happened. Um, the data is rock solid. We cannot debate whether this data is true or not, or how reliable the data is. It's clear. That's a wonderful set of data to base your opinions on. Quite often when we see surveys in press releases, it's a survey that has been done with a thousand professionals on LinkedIn uh, mm -hmm. that asked, uh, are you thinking about changing or will you be changing your job in the next 12 months? It's something like this. I very much dislike data like this because as humans, we are extremely bad at predicting the future, our own behavior into the future. If you had asked me at the beginning of the year what my weight was going to be today, I would have been massively off target, even though it was completely in my hand. And I think that's a nice little example to showcase that we can't predict our own behaviour, even in the medium term. Now, Simon, the World Economic Forum's widely quoted Future of Jobs report contains data gathered from various sources, including business social networking site LinkedIn. What's your reaction to that? I think what we see here is that when there is very little data available on a topic that is very much uh, of interest, then everybody looks at the same data set because it's the only thing around. And then whatever finding is, uh, <laughs> is shown in this data set gets amplified to probably a ridiculous degree. And so once again, we need to look at this very, very carefully. And we need to remember that these are probably mostly just desktop researchers who run relatively small surveys and who come to a topic with a, and this is not, not mean or mean-spirited, they come to a topic with a certain story in mind already. 
the future of jobs. What will the future of jobs be? It's more tech, it's more whatever. And you then have a spin in your mind and you, you, you ask questions hinting at a certain solution and that's not done by default. This is biases that people are not even aware of. And that's demographer Simon Kustemacher. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong, and we're looking at data sets and what they can and can't tell you. Annette Slunsky is the Managing Director of the Institute of Analytics Professionals of Australia. Annette, how important is data literacy? It's the new life skill. Um, We used to have reading, writing and arithmetic. Today we have reading, writing, arithmetic and data literacy. And it's something where you can recognise, use and communicate using data. It's going to be the skill that everyone needs in a job. It's pretty much going to be the thing that it gets you through the door. So being able to look at a database, a spreadsheet, even your readings off your Fitbit and understand what that means. Data builds understanding. And for a business, that's building understanding about your customers and how your business is running. So the easiest thing to do is, you know, every time you see a spreadsheet, some data is to start asking why and start building that skill up. And if I was going to capture or collect data, what things would I have to keep in mind? When you're capturing data, it it tends to fall into two sort of camps. So one is the research camp, and that's where you've got a hypothesis. You've got something you're wanting to test, and you're actively out there trying to verify or not that hypothesis. Analytics is different. It's taking existing data stores and looking for those trends, correlations, or even causations that exist in the data. So research is asking a question and analytics is kind of exploring the existing data. They kind of go hand in hand. Analytics can uncover what happened and how, but often you need research to answer the why it happened. If you're a business and you're collecting the data, you can build bias in right from the very start in terms of how you're collecting the data. If you're only collecting data at the gym about eating habits, it's going to then reveal things that are very different than if you collected data outside a fast food chain. So you always want to keep in mind what purpose that the data is being collected for. You also need to understand that if you're surveying people, if you're asking them a question, are you really getting the right answer? So we know that people will adjust their answers if they feel there's a societal pressure, whether it's real or not, to answer the question in a certain way. So if you want to test that out, just ask people how many alcoholic drinks they have every week (laughs) and you're probably (laughs) going to get an answer that, you know, they think you want to know. So sometimes by collecting the data, asking a question, it'll give you skewed answers. So sometimes the best insights are from observing behaviour instead of asking how much exercise you get. Why don't we just look at your Fitbit and then we know. And then in that example, it depends who's asking as well. If I was a beverage company asking that question as opposed to a company that helps people with alcohol issues. Exactly. And some of it, particularly when you see surveys that trumpet 50% of Australians, you know, eat chocolate every day and it's 
delivered by someone who makes chocolate, then you kind of can see that there was a specific question that they were asking, <laughs> reason they were asking How much that do question. you love chocolate? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, Annette, when we're talking about these difficulties when collecting data, could I get in a tangle if I did this on social media, for example? You have to recognise that social media, it's there for people to be entertained. And when you're looking at that data, people have decided that engagement is the thing that matters to social media. So, engagement is is lifted if you're using polls and things. So, when you're looking at those surveys or results out of social media, you can often see that it's a really small sample. So, 200 people saying that the great resignation is true doesn't mean the rest of Australia believes that to be true because 200 people isn't representative. But it might be fun to see that. So don't bet your house on what you see. It's there for entertainment. That's the way you should view it. Annette, can you give me an example where a difficulty has altered survey results? Sure. So it depends on several factors, but let's focus on two. So how the question is written can inherently assume a fact. So the answer is skewed before they even answer it. So Lisa, if I asked you a healthy level of daily exercise is 20 minutes a day, how long do you exercise daily? What would you answer? 21 minutes. Exactly, right? (laughs) But if I asked you how often do you exercise without any parameters around it, then you're more likely to give me a real answer or a correct answer. So that's looking at the question and how you're asking the question. But then physically, how are you asking the question? If it's on social media, then only the people who are on social media and all their characteristics are going to be inherent in the data that you get. If it's only online, then only those people with access to the internet are going to answer it. And if we take that just a little bit further, if you had a survey and say you didn't code it very well so that on a desktop you could see it perfectly, but on a mobile phone all the answers ran off the screen, it was really hard to answer it, then when you get those results, you're going to skew your your sample because People who typically only use a mobile phone, so say the younger generation, you're not going to get any answers from them because they couldn't physically answer the questions. So part of the reason why analytics is so hot, and we talked a little bit about uh, skill shortages before, there's a huge skill shortage for analytics people because of this very reason, because it's very hard to get the right survey data from people, but it's very easy to look into existing data sets, look into your Fitbit data or your gym access records to know how much you exercise. So there's so much consumer data that's out there from apps, websites, sensors, transactions, even your own customer records that with some analysis, even just a spreadsheet, you can then dive into and see where or what's happening in your business or what's happening in your world just by your own analysis. But you've got to be willing to dive into the data. Don't be scared. And now we're coming all the way back to data literacy. So this is all part and parcel of being able to uh, use reading, writing, arithmetic and data literacy because it is a life skill. You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong, and we're talking about data and decision-making. Simon, what's been emerging for you listening there? 
I really liked the narrative around uh, data literacy and how this is the new skill. That is that you do need data literacy in a tech-heavy world to make sure that you understand the data that is collected, that is shown to you. It's a really important skill. And it's it's something that is unnegotiable. We, we need this. It becomes a crucial uh, skill set to survive in the world of work. But I'd also like to add to that, that in just that world where every aspect of work gets more technical, more technological, the skill set that sets you apart is actually not the technological skill set. But in this world, Lots of the work tasks that are being technical in nature, they are being taken over by AIs, by algorithms. And then the work tasks that remain with us little worker bees are increasingly interpersonal in nature. So the share of the pie of our work tasks that is interpersonal, where we're interacting with humans, that is increasingly going to be interpersonal, essentially for all jobs. So that means that the skill sets that will set us apart in a technological world, these are actually the social skills. These are the interpersonal communication skills, if, if that makes sense. So I would argue that the most important subject in school is not necessarily maths to survive in the tech world, but it would be the theater, drama classes, where you learn how to interact with other people in a very um, collaborative way. Annette, what do you think about that idea? I think that one of the most important skills that and something that should be taught in schools all the way through to year 12 is philosophy. Ethics, how you interact uh, with all these data sets, how you use them, all those kinds of things is going to be more and more important. Simon touched on artificial intelligence. The way you create those, if you're not looking at things in a very ethical kind of way, then you're setting yourself up potentially to create something that does not give, you know, societal good and delivers to the business something you weren't expecting. And there's some great examples of AI bots and things just going crazy because they didn't actually consider all the different elements that are going in, all the different pieces of data that are going into it. So philosophy is really important. But I would always say that there's always a place for uh, being a little bit cognizant of data and maths. So um, I'm sorry, that one's hard-coded in, maths. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a new base level requirement. So you, you need to be able to write. And in order, we need to be able to read to have to do most jobs in Australia these days. So that's the skill set that is the entry ticket to the job. Uh, but within this job, it will not set you apart. Then data literacy, tech skills will be the entry ticket to, to almost all jobs that we create in Australia. But within this job, once you're in the job, the thing that sets you apart is not actually the base level skills in, in data, in programming. It is actually the interpersonal nature of your job because everybody increasingly in your field will have uh, upskilled to the new data reading requirements, if you will. And Simon, what is our level of data literacy in Australia from zero to 10? Ha, did you see what I did there? I made a data joke. <laughs> I can't possibly measure this, but I'm sure if we run a quick survey on LinkedIn, we get the exact number. <laughs> The, the interesting thing is if you look at uh, SEEK data, um, and today there's uh, a little over 230,000 jobs on SEEK. 
3.4% of those have the word analytics in it. So the interesting thing with that is Seek not only, and it's different to LinkedIn, it's not just professional jobs, but it's cooks, cleaners, you know, it's all the, all the jobs that are out there. So 3% of them are asking for people to have a skill in using data. So absolutely, as Simon was saying, it's, it's your foot in the door, it's table stakes, and definitely um, it's something that everyone needs to, to look at to be able to improve those skills. Can we talk about an interesting variable that could contribute to incorrect conclusions when it comes to statistical analysis? And that's Simpson's paradox. Yeah, so that's the idea how we sometimes can just misread data if we don't look into the details closely enough. So I think the most common example uh, that is thrown around here is always around test score data in the United States, where you can look at one state, you know, let's say Wisconsin, and they have a much higher test score rate than, for example, Texas have. And then you conclude in Wisconsin, the educational system is better and the people are better educated than they are in Texas. But that seems correct because the number in Wisconsin is higher than in Texas. But then you dive in deeper into the data and you do see that in Wisconsin, the, the population is largely made up of, of white people who have a, due to socioeconomic advantages, have higher test scores on average uh, than Hispanics or, or black people in the United States. And then you look at the population set up in Texas and you do see that there are just heaps fewer white people in the data set and you have much more uh, people in the Hispanics uh, set in particular. And then you look at the test scores based on ethnic uh, uh, parameters and you do see that Texas outperforms Wisconsin in every single of those groups. So the idea is you always need to dive in very deep into a data set to understand what might be the real story. So this is, you know, you can say this day people are lying with the data. People are just only uh, superficially looking at data in this example, but it's just another example of showing how carefully we need to analyze the world and that there's always more hidden deep within than we see at uh, first glance. And these hidden variables are called lurking variables. <laughs> I love that name. Sounds very cheeky, doesn't it? It does. Annette, do you have anything to add? In terms of looking at the data, it's something that uh, those that practice analytics, those that, that are actually doing this every day for their job, this is one of the things they have to take into account. So um, it's something that definitely is there, but there are professionals out there that are trained to uh, look deeper. What I'm hearing here is that we have data, but then we have to understand that, of course, there's humans involved with the data. So always looking at that human element and how that might play out in how we collect the data and how we interpret the data. Uh, that's absolutely correct. And everyone comes to that data with their own bias. And one of the big things is there needs to be a diverse group of people sitting around the table when you're developing anything to do with data. So you need all those different voices so that you're not going to end up, you know, hard coding into whatever it is you're doing, a bias that pretty much will then discriminate against a particular group of people. So that diversity is really, really important because as people, we can't help it. We come to everything with bias. We can be trained to reduce it, but 
there's always inherent bias in everything we do. And you'll always want to remember when you see data in the media that there is by default, be this media, social media, that there's always a reporting bias in there. Data will only be reported if the uh, result is a bit extreme, is a bit interesting. If you only talk about tiny marginal shifts, why would you report on it? Then it's not newsworthy. So make sure to remember that you only ever will read about the most extreme outlier findings of research of data because nobody is willing to uh, you know uh, uh, waste if you will airtime on a mild and vanilla change in a data set that was demographer simon kistemacher and annette slunsky managing director of the institute of analytics professionals of australia you've been listening to this working life i'm lisa leong and until next week keep working You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.